0: Welcome to the World of Migration, the podcast that the Migration Policy Institute has launched as part of its 20th anniversary celebration. This series showcases some of the top thinkers on migration policy who are central to MPI's creation or who have long been part of its leadership. In this podcast we're asking experts to reflect on how policy has changed over the past two decades and we're also asking them to share some of their reflections on their careers and thoughts for today's emerging migration experts. My name is Ivana Thunyi Yang and I'm a program and research assistant with MPI's National Center on Immigrant Integration Policy. Today, I'm delighted to be speaking with Margie McHugh, who directs the National Center on Immigrant Integration Policy. Inside MPI, we just call it the center, which she co-founded early in MPI's life. Margie came to MPI from a career in immigrant integration and related issues in New York, where she was executive director of the New York Immigration Coalition for many years. And before that, she served in the New York City government as deputy director of the city's 1990 census project, among other responsibilities. Margie is nationally renowned in immigrant integration circles and is the recipient of dozens of awards recognizing her efforts to bring diverse constituencies together to tackle tough problems. As such, I can't think of anyone better for our topic today, which is called Immigrant Integration, Essential to the Success of Immigration Policy. Margie, thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
1: Ivana, so great to be having a chance to talk to you about things that we never have time for in our regular lives at MPI.
0: Yes, I'm very excited. First off, um, before we dive into the topic, Margie, maybe can you give me a quick minute on what MPI's Integration Center does and where it sits within the field of immigrant integration?
1: Sure. So our center since its founding, has been focused on what you might expect at a place like MPI, policy analysis, research, data products. I think maybe the thing that folks who aren't really familiar with our work wouldn't be aware of is that we also do quite a bit of technical assistance and capacity building uh, work and initiatives, usually focused on working with people who are Important actors uh, inside and outside government, you know, community uh, community leadership organizations, or folks in school districts or state agencies that are running major service systems. So we try to work uh, we try to work with those sorts of actors to actually support them trying to figure out what are effective policies for working with immigrant and refugee families. So uh, so it's those kinds of functions that kind of under the center's umbrella or in our bailiwick, but then we're also focused, <laughs> integration just cuts across everything. So um, we do a lot of work in the, uh, those kinds of efforts in the early childhood, um, adult ed and workforce, K-12 education uh, spaces, and also uh, issues like language access, trend, which is uh, basically how do, how do agencies set up translation and interpretation services to allow immigrants, uh, to allow them to be um, in touch with immigrant families or serve them
0: effectively. Yes, and it's been such an honor to be part of that work over this past year. And in your work, you have described immigrant integration as the domestic policy side of the immigration policy debate. In other words, the secret sauce as to whether immigration policy is successful or not. Why is immigrant integration essential and not just for immigrants?
1: Well, it, anyone who knows me <laughs> knows that, uh, that I have been very frustrated over the years that in the immigration debate in the U.S., we think of it just in terms of uh, really numbers and categories of who's going to get into the country and or who might be subject to deportation or removal. And we, we don't put nearly as much energy into trying to make sure that immigration works when you're close to the ground. Uh, that it's it's a win-win. I would say a win-win in the sense that both immigrant families are able to succeed, and that uh, it's a good thing for the communities that they settle in. Uh, that that we really are helping to create a cohesive and productive society, and that that immigration uh, immigration supports that supports the overall good. Uh, of the country and of, and of immigrants who are coming here and uh, and it's not easy. we're a big country. and when I came into the field, it was only really uh, I know some people would disagree with me about this, but maybe f- there were really five states that had significant numbers of immigrants kind of in the in, a, in the modern day sense in the in the uh, starting in the 1990s, say. And those five states were New York, Texas, California, Illinois, and Florida, and over the course of my career, we're now at more like um, forty-five states where where immigration is really an issue, and so supporting all of these states that really did not have si- significant numbers of immigrants in this modern chapter of the country's uh, of the country's immigration history, it's it's there's been a lot of growing pains in different parts of the country, and so. Paying attention to that and responsibly trying to, to deal with that um, is such an important piece of immigration policymaking, I would say. And, uh, and so in uh, co-founding the center with Michael Fix, uh, who was a wonderful colleague who I knew before he even came to MPI when he was head of the Urban Institute's Immigrant Policy Project, I thought it was so wonderful when he went to MPI because it really brought the sorts of issues that he functioned on, that he focused on at the Urban Institute over into MPI, and, uh, and then it was just such an exciting prospect to, um, to join him in co-founding the center so that we would be able to uh, really try and bring these issues up into the national level conversation around immigration policy.
0: Yes, so I think in my time at MPI, one of the values of the Institute that have really stuck with me is the idea that immigration, when well-managed, can be beneficial to immigrants receiving communities um, and society as a whole. And I feel like your answer speaks to that. So thanks for sharing that. So thinking more comparatively across the globe, some countries, for example, in Europe, are far more intentional than the United States is about shaping integration policy agendas and funding them. The U.S., which likes to describe itself as a melting pot, has a far more laissez-faire policy. When you, Margie, look across your career and your knowledge of these different approaches, why do you think countries have taken such divergent directions on immigrant integration?
1: Well, I would say it's, it's, not, it's not hard to answer that question, but my goodness, it just encompasses so, uh, j- just so many different realities and the implications are so broad. So, Ivana, that is a, uh, a, a super interesting point to make and one that connects to so many pieces of MPI's work because, of course, the international program at MPI, and I've been very privileged over the years uh, to, to work here and there with that team and with MPI Brussels on integration issues, uh, particularly in the European space. Uh, but also uh, a bit with um, the Canadian and, and Australian governments as well, but uh, but the work there is so much more intentional, and I would say, except in the cases of Canada and Australia, is because by and large in the European space, those are countries that are defined by blood, or citizenship is defined by blood in those country in those countries, and, and sort of a, a you know deeper shared. Past culture and history, whereas, of course, in the U.S. and also in in Canada and Australia, those are countries that, in the in the modern era, um, I guess you know, over the past several hundred years, that those are nations that arose by through immigration and and developed systems and identities that allowed citizenship uh, to be obtained or a sense of belonging. Uh, uh, to be had by folks who were who were joining from multiple cultures, speaking multiple languages, although ultimately kind of becoming these sorts of melting pots, and uh, and where English is the most commonly spoken language. So, you know, it's a bit of a problem uh, in the U.S. that we, uh, because we have that history, that we that we think it kind of happened by magic that somehow everyone was integrated. And we really don't think about how different the nature of the economy was through those several hundred years. And in uh, the many investments, particularly post the, the depression and World War One and World War II in the US, where we had major investments that uh, really uh, went across the board, trying to bring the country together and make a major push with helping uh, helping families join the middle class, and uh, so I, I I think it's <laughs> we often look with envy at um, at um, the policies that are in place in places like Canada, Australia, and Europe, where there's so much more intentional policy making related to integration. In the European case, I think because they know, they say it right out. You know, we are not countries that are, are used to it. We, we just don't know how to do it conceptually. How do we have people join us who don't speak our language, don't share our culture? It's just, it's just not part of our national identity or, or, or it has not been a part of our way of living. Whereas uh, I would say Canada and Australia they are more intentional than the U.S., even though they tend towards more of a melting pot um, uh, idea. They're, they're just a lot more intentional uh, in terms of saying that it's not easy in the modern, you know, in this modern chapter of um, migration history to uh, to have this all work, because it's it's not as easy for people to jump into the middle class or to make a one generation jump. Um, into the middle class uh, in the way that um, that it might have been for earlier generations.
0: I think that, um, you know, we spend so much time in the center talking about issues in the U.S. and at the state and local level sometimes that um, there's so much more that I realize I need to learn about integration across the globe. So thanks for sharing that. And. Turning back to the U.S., the COVID-19 pandemic has obviously been a major event in the history of the country, and we also know that it has disproportionately impacted immigrants and their families. Margie, how would you say that it has affected work in the integration field?
1: I would say in the early days when we started the center, we were trying to build an identity for the integration field. And so it's part of why we ran an integration prizes program and, and really tried to push the idea of integration into in immigration policy conversations and have it be comfortable language for, for folks across the many different stovepipes of integration services, early childhood, K twelve, adult ed, workforce training, uh, to be using as they were trying to name what the what the issues were that they were facing and the policy making and programmatic challenges they were trying to address and and also take advantage of opportunities to really really help families thrive. We have had some very good policies in place, particularly in K twelve education. That um, that have had English learners, for example, be identified and uh, and be able to receive um, or be required at least to um, have services available uh, to support their education. So when we arrived at the pandemic, we it was still it's still very much a patchwork of how we were doing in different states and different systems in terms of uh, being able to effectively understand and work on integration challenges and opportunities. And then COVID on the one hand impacted so disproportionately and so heavily immigrant and refugee families because of their place very often in the economy and the workforce. And, and just the, you know, they, they were so often not jobs that people could, work uh, remotely and they really needed to be truly on the front lines in so many industries. And, uh, and also they were just disproportionately impacted from a health perspective, lack of childcare, just all sorts of issues. And it also was very disruptive for the education of immigrant children who were English learners. So in the midst of all of that, um, that pain and disruption in communities I think it I think it really put issues of integration on the map in many systems in a way that they really hadn't been I, I just looking at headlines, For months and months, and even now across the country, the understanding of the lack of digital access um, for, you know, for so many immigrant families, the fact that parents had to be working on the front lines and couldn't be home, uh, uh, you know, supervising their kids moment to moment learning. So I I do think that COVID has been hopefully a a moment of uh, kind of cultural understanding and also very practical understanding. Of some of the issues and challenges that um, that we uh, that we need to address from an integration point of um, point of view, and a lot of the equity dialogue that's emerging as a result of the impact of the pandemic, I think will also it's also a, a unique opportunity in the in the course of my career. I would say that the fact that President Biden had his first. Executive order is about advancing equity, and uh, and that it's a chance to look at racial and ethnic subgroups and to understand how federal policies might be overlooking ways that it could do a better job of identifying and addressing uh, some of the ways in which in which our policies and our systems are not uh, are not really addressing. Uh, equity issues that stand out in data, or that stand out in terms of how um, how services and uh, and systems are structured. Um, it, it's to me, it's really deep, uh, wide, and deep. What might be able uh, to happen as a result of that? So, I think the pandemic definitely has, um, you know, it's, it has been a um, has two faces has ha, has its two sides, but you know out of all of this um sadness and misery and uh disruption, I think that uh we may be able to actually take some uh really critical steps forward
0: maybe that there's a silver lining um that the pandemic brought us with this new emphasis on equity if we can take advantage of it right. Um, so, as you said, we understand that COVID and the move to remote learning in school districts across the U.S. have proven particularly devastating to English learners (ELs), immigrant children, and those in low-income families more generally. Um, Margie, what interventions do you think are necessary to help get these students back on track?
1: We put we've done a lot of work on this. I think folks can um, can certainly find it on our website. We we we've dug deep on the issue of assessments, since so much of how we track how English learners are being served is via assessment systems, and uh, and a lot of that has fallen down for um, for uh, obvious reasons during the pandemic, uh, and um, and then I think we've also seen that in the early childhood space that uh, children who are from immigrant families and who are dual language learners were the most likely not to be getting um, early childhood or pre-K services, uh, pre-K programming. And so that's that's a much harder issue to fix. I think K-12, I think a lot of K-12 teachers would tell you, uh, we know we've got a big problem on our hands, but we know what we need to do and we know how to do it. So just give us the you know give us the the room to um to really work with these kids and um and try and make up for uh for the losses that we've had it's not so easy in the early childhood space and uh partly because we just aren't very well staffed there there's not a lot of linguistically and culturally competent early childhood services and um, and these are these are kids who are moving forward um, without us being able to try and close gaps for them. So I would say I'm I'm much more worried. Uh, I'm much more worried about that part of the system. And I hope it will help us understand that uh, parents are such an important pa- parents of young children are such an important part of the solution here and that we really have not, it's one of the things we've overlooked over the last 30 or 40 years that parents are, are really our frontline. Um, you know, they're, they're really the army that can help uh, close the gaps in the early childhood space, but that we're not, we're, we're, we're thinking in terms of center-based programs as opposed to, um, really making the most of what parents uh, parents would be motivated and happy to do if we could just help uh, help them understand US systems better and and some of the approaches to early learning um, that are that are proven uh, th- the things that are important for um, helping children to uh, to really be ready for uh, first success in school
0: Could you say more about the specifics of what? That parental role would be for children that young, ages zero to five
1: well it's very much about rich language development. Very often, immigrant parents think that somehow they'll be hurting their children's chances of learning English if they speak to them in their native language, and you know if if a parent is fully proficient in English and another language then there, there's, of course, a different way that parents can approach their children's language learning. But uh, especially for parents who have limited proficiency in English, since so much about, the, about early childhood brain development is just developing neurons on top of neurons on top of neurons, that all comes from a child just being excited to be talking to their parent and, or talking to, you know, people that uh, caregivers and and family members and the like who are going to engage them and and keep talking a little bit at the edge of the child's language ability and at the edge of the child's understanding of how things work in the world. And so what that does is just grow um, uh, a denser and denser network in the child's brain, of how to both understand the world, how to name things in the world, how to understand how things happen that they're observing, and uh, and it's really that brain development that's the critical piece of success when a child's arriving at the at the school door, and it doesn't matter that the child i mean it matters in a technical sense about how are you going to how are you going to interact with a child that that has all this fabulous brain development but it's all in a language other than english but our systems know how to do that for, or they they should be able to do that but really that critical role of the parents in in laying the, in creating the foundation cognitively. I mean, it's also social, social, emotional, is is undergirds all of this. It's too much to get into here, but really it's the cognitive piece that I think parents need to have the confidence that they're doing the right thing by talking in, in rich language um, to their children. And the rich language is usually available in the the language the parent is most comfortable in, and there's lots of lots of different strategies that are, um, and lots of different resources out there. But so much of this is invisible to uh, families that are recently arrived, or it's not part of the um, uh, the culture and the approach um, that they come from, and the like. So that's really that's really what we need to, um, I think, get to now, and I hope we'll be able to. Um, as we as we think about how to come out of the pandemic and, and make sure that we're especially helping young children. Um, it's not just a pandemic issue because honestly, it'll be a few decades before we can build our early childhood systems to be linguistically and culturally competent and um, to be able to really reach and engage uh, immigrant families, especially very diverse uh, uh, families um, who speak languages other than Spanish, for example. And so you know, parents were, and they, and they are, and they um, especially still are post the pandemic, uh, the place for investment, I would say, in the early childhood space.
0: Absolutely. You have me on board with that. <laughs> so in asking you to reflect a little bit back on your career at MPI, which spans much of its life, what do you see as the biggest changing trends in the immigrant integration space?
1: Well, I mentioned earlier that when we started when Michael Fix and I started the center, uh, one of the really important initial programs that we ran was in uh, the E. Floribus Unum Integration uh, Prizes program. And if if you think of that as the that that'll be the point that I'm sort of measuring from, that at that point we were saying, how do we have even just the words immigrant integration? Uh, become uh, part of the vocabulary at the federal level uh, and also have all of these program wonderful programs who are working that are working all around the country identify as, integration practitioners, if you will. We weren't looking for them to actually call themselves that, but just that they saw themselves as part of this larger societal project and all this important work uh, that um, that really needed to be named and uh, better understood um, in the, in national policy conversations. And that was a period where the National Immigrant Integration Conference got started Um, The National Partnership for New Americans, which is an umbrella organization for Uh, for many groups that work on these issues at the state, many networks of groups that work on these issues at the state and local level also came together into one uh, national umbrella organization. Just a lot of infrastructure, I would say, grew over the years. And I would say that where we're at now is this unique moment that we spoke about post-COVID, where there's much more of a national dialogue around racial equity that is inclusive of issues related to uh, immigrant and refugee families and that has real data underneath it in the last 30 years or so and we we didn't really have a framework for talking about how that is relevant within a number of different systems uh, and that we're talking about both, Uh, That we're really talking, I would say, at the family level, understanding the impacts of low-wage work, high-cost housing, skill mismatches the the importance of early childhood, the importance of high school graduation, you know, like we're we're so developed now, I think, in a number of policy fields where immigrant and refugee children and families are embedded in those conversations and data and this national focus on on equity. It is a trend, but it's also a moment. A lot of things have gotten us to this place, but it's also this moment where things can be pulled together and so i'm i'm very excited about that and i also feel that uh on the one hand it's it's very disappointing to see that there's there's so much controversy around immigration policy and so many challenges uh, unexpected challenges for example that have arisen just um, in, the, in the past year in terms of the number of asylum seekers at the southern border, the issues related to the Afghan refugee uh, population and the like, that we're just completely preoccupied with the immigration debate and with immigration issues but th- this has been the story of trying to get to integration issues for, for a good number of years now that they keep, they keep being uh, sort of steamrolled over because we're so mad about immigration policy or we have so many issues that need to be addressed there. But I do think that there's a rich enough conversation within systems now about whether or not they are working effectively with Uh, with immigrant background children and families. And then we've had this additional moment because of COVID. So I think on both counts, you know, we're on a stronger footing in terms of being able to to really move this up in the national conversation and try and bring the integration and immigration policy pieces together. And honestly, I think all of MPI's work uh, internationally to raise up the investments that so many other countries are making and innovations in their in their uh, policy thinking and approaches to address integration issues uh, is also challenging the U.S. You know we're not we're not unique in facing these issues and other folks are really taking them on and so I, I do think and and then we also have that sort of innovation at the state and local level. In the U.S., with creation of more integration offices at the state level and also many of them at the city level, so I see it as sort of bubbling up in the U.S. from the local and state level into the uh, into the national conversation. And it's also, in a sense, um, out there in the international conversation, which is also pushing in on the U.S. conversation. So I do think that um, I do think that it's it's ripening on many levels.
0: It's always such an honor when I get to catch some of your time to hear about the insight that you have um, after your very long and successful career. So um, I just wanted to ask if you have any parting thoughts I just
1: think that one of, one of my main parting thoughts is that we have so many terrific staff who are coming to us now with really serious academic uh, credentials and backgrounds in these issues in a way that, you know, people didn't focus on this in their academic careers 20 years ago in the way that they do now. And so I would just say people like you and those on our team and those more broadly at MPI, I think really stand the field in good stead. And you know a lot about our various interns who come through, who also are um, really have terrific skill sets and, and uh, experiences that are deep and relevant. So um, so I I do think that the leadership and thought, careful thought on these issues is critical. That these, when you think about, just back to where we started. Domestic policy is complicated. We are a big country. We we have so everything is true somewhere in the country. It is so hard to aggregate and make policies that are relevant for all the different local contexts. Regard in every every kind of policy area that um that exist in the in the domestic policy space, and then integration issues cross cut all of those. So. The need for uh, the need for the rising generation of activists and academics and uh, people who are going to be working in all of these different fields to really uh, embrace the complexity of the, these issues. I think that I think that it's um, it's it's happening, and like every hard thing. Um, you just have to do the work to get through it. And I just am grateful to see that uh, a lot of people are really rising um, in the field and across the country who want to take these issues seriously. And that includes you, Ivana. <laughs> Thanks, Margie. <laughs> oh, it's been my pleasure uh, to be able to spend this time with you and, um, and, uh, and talk about some of these things.
0: Yes, this is wonderful and also a great place to leave things. Thank you, Margie. This has really been an interesting discussion, and I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thank you, Ivana. Margie McHugh is director of MPI's National Center on Immigrant Integration Policy. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the World of Migration, MPI's 20th anniversary podcast. For more on MPI's first 20 years, please visit migrationpolicy.org forward slash about forward slash 20th. You can find all of the episodes for the World of Migration and other MPI podcasts online at migrationpolicy.org slash podcasts, or you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for World of Migration, and please give us a review while you're there. This episode was produced by Michelle Middlestadt and Yusuf Hamid and made possible through the assistance of Lisa Dixing.